0: When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. Because the foundation of the House of the Lord was laid, the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning again, everyone. It has been said there are a lot of new faces here i 'd love to meet you if I haven't done so already, and I will be out of the pulpit. No one will be in the pulpit next week. Um, and then the following week, our own uh, Pete Sommerfeld will be preaching, so I hope you'll be excited about that. Um, it's, it'll be a very different time and encouraging time, and I um, hope everyone could be there. The next week, we'll have uh, Jay Braben from our sister church uh, in North Portland that'll be preaching. So I'll have actually three weeks out of the pulpit, so thank you for that rest, and we'll get back to our Great Prayers of the Bible series after that. So this morning we're looking at Ezra 3, a very famous prayer in the Bible, and would you pray with me as we get started? Father God, I pray that you would help us to learn from this prayer, to learn how to pray, but beyond that, to pray the gospel, to pray grace, to pray your acceptance and your love and your forgiveness for us, and to have that well up in thanksgiving, And Lord, I pray that if there's anything that marks our prayer life, it would be thanksgiving. That even if we pray very simple, one-word sentences, that I pray that we would give thanks, that we'd be gracious people, full of gratitude, not only for the physical blessings that You've given us in our lives, but for You, that You are our companion, that You are our God, that You are gracious. And we pray that You would lead us in that way as we encounter this text. In Jesus' name, amen. In recent years, people have seen the face of Jesus in their toast, in tortillas, in pancakes, in Cheetos, in dental x-rays, in clouds, in shadows, in walls, in pie, and in star clusters. Some of these things have been sold on eBay There's a casino, an online casino that actually buys these things so that they can invite people to come and see them, and people actually get in their car and drive to go see faces of Jesus that have been burnt in toast. And if your image of Jesus is a long-haired white guy, they're pretty good representations. Go online today and you'll be able to see, wow, that looks exactly like Jesus. Well, people will go to great lengths, to sense the presence of God in their lives. And obviously, something like seeing Jesus in a Cheeto is a little bit silly, but people want more than just a mystical, esoteric type of idea of who God is, something physical, something tangible. And throughout the Bible, it seems that God understands our need to be close to Him and him to be close to us in tangible ways, in images and in signs. And this is how he presents himself to us throughout the Bible to represent his presence and his love. And here in this passage, the Jewish people have been released from exile and they are going back after captivity. And the first thing they think to do is to build a temple, or more accurately, to rebuild the temple. In their shared experience of God, he had been present in their midst, not in some mysterious or incomprehensible way, but in an imminent, in a physical way, in the temple of God. Now, this book, as we're just diving into Ezra, it was part of Nehemiah. It was one book, and it's about the return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. And it's not just in Ezra and Nehemiah, but also a lot of the minor prophets talk about this period of time, and it's very important. Now, if you have your Bible here this morning, if you open it and you start thumbing through it, Ezra comes sort of in the first third of the Bible, but actually it's one of the last books chronologically. It was written in the three or four hundreds, and it's one of the last events of the Bible before the New Testament. Written, as I said, as Jews are returning from exile. They had been conquered and enslaved by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Persians. And the king of Persia has finally said to them, I grant you privilege to go back to your land, go back to Jerusalem, and not only that, to rebuild your temple. And he actually gives them some resources to do that. So these were very hopeful times on one hand, but they were also very hard times. They were hopeful because after hundreds of years in captivity, they were being released. They were returning, and they had some measure of support from the king of Persia. But what were they returning to? They were returning to a broken-down temple that no longer even really stood. There was just the foundation. They were returning to a decimated city. It was no longer the glorious city of God where King David had reigned. And you see in verse 11 and 12 that not everyone was happy as they began this attempt to rebuild. This says, Many praised the Lord, but many wept out loud to the degree that both were equally voluminous, and you couldn't distinguish between the two. There was great celebration and great weeping. Some had hope. Some recognized the work of God in this, but others continued to lament their situation And they found fault with God. They had been a great nation, you see. They had a mighty temple and a powerful king. And now they had nothing but the shirts on their back. And they were going back to a forgotten land. And the temple that Zerubbabel and Joshua, Joshua number two in the Bible, this is not Joshua that led the Israelites into the promised land, but Joshua that helped to rebuild the temple. And they laid the foundations, and people looked at the dimensions, and they wept. Not very impressive, not very big. So many wept out loud. And I hope you're not offended by this if you're part of the gray hair of our congregation, but it actually says here that it's the old folks that wept. No kidding. The old folks, the one who may have seen the temple that had memories of their great city, the people that still thought of themselves as a powerful nation even though they had been in exile, they remembered the glory of the temple back in the day, and so they wept because this temple would hold not even a candle. They were weeping as loud as the celebrating. Now, maybe these were just people that were old and grumpy and they were going to complain about everything, it's like the grandmother who is was walking their grand, her grandson by the ocean, and a great wave comes in and sweeps the grandson out to sea, and she immediately falls onto her knees and cries out to God, God, creator of the universe, please spare my grandson, I beg you. And lo and behold, another wave washes the grandson back up on the beach, not a scratch on him. And the grandmother lifts her head and says, you know, he had a hat. took you a minute, didn't it? Or maybe they just like the old days. Nostalgia was their thing, This sort of golden age thinking that we experience today nationally. If we could just get back to the way things were, then we would be fine. Or theologically, we have this golden age thinking as we select some previous articulation of the faith as pristine, as Functionally perfect. It says everything that needs to be said about God. It cannot be improved upon. Improved upon. And so theology becomes something that's locked in the past to be preserved and protected and never really thought about again. Or we have this golden age nostalgic thinking personally, as we long for life before, before a broken heart, before kids. Before complications of adulthood. Life was so great when I was a child. And this kind of thinking, in whatever realm we find it emerging in, it makes us less sensitive to the work of God now. It makes it difficult to see that He is showing up in new and in fresh ways and creative ways in our lives, in our theology, our nation, our personal. Experience with him in new ways. And it can kill our enthusiasm for what he's doing today, now. It can make us despise, as Zechariah says, talking about this very same event, despise the days of small beginnings. Because we're looking back, this is what the temple used to be like. This is what my life used to be like. This is what the church used to be like. If we could just get back there. And we don't see what God is doing now. Their situation was hard. They were starting over. They couldn't rest upon some national, theological, personal prestige that was locked in the past. But God wanted them to trust Him now in the new things that He was doing. And some of them, because of that, they had hope. They would remember Jeremiah 33 That though they went into exile and that God allowed them to go into exile because they had so fully turned their hearts away from Him, that He allowed these invaders to come in and wipe them, wipe Jerusalem off the map. They also had God's promise in that time that He would be the one to restore them. They knew, in other words, that they would hear the voice of God again, and now that promise was coming true. It was beginning to be fulfilled, and those who had eyes to see could see it in the dimensions of the temple. And so in 11, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, and His love toward Israel endures forever. Sometimes in our hardship, we simply need to hear that you will indeed see the goodness of God again. You will indeed sense His presence again. Life is hard, but there is hope because He is good and His love endures forever. So we remember that hardship doesn't mean that we are forgotten, that we are alone, and certainly not that God has abandoned us, but we can have hope There were those who weren't disappointed in the dimensions of the temple. They were able to see something that didn't exist yet because they had God's promises, they knew of His character, and they saw that something new and fresh was happening again in their national life and in their personal lives. And they were overjoyed. But why? What's so big about building a temple? Why were their hopes placed upon This thing. Well, the temple is one of those words, one of those concepts that shows up over 600 times in the Bible. It's very important. And if we understand the concept of what the temple represented, it helps us as sort of an interpretive key to understand most of the rest of the Bible. Now, if you read the Bible, you understand and we read that God is omnipresent, He's everywhere but He also has a relational face. He has a a sacramental presence. What Hebrews called the paneum. it's His sacramental relational face. And it's where He says most clearly, though He is everywhere, He says in these signs and in these things, in these buildings, that He is with you and for you. God doesn't just give words, but He gives signs. Think about Him walking in the Garden of Eden. He reveals Himself as a burning bush to Moses. The Passover blood for the Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt. The tabernacle, this physical edifice that represented that God is still with them as they wander the desert. And then finally in the temple where God would dwell permanently with his people. This nation of Israel, the smallest of nation, with nothing really to recommend itself to God. He seeks them out. He gives them a sign of his eternal favor. And that's what's meant to be embodied in this temple. That's why those returning from exile were so eager to rebuild Solomon's temple. They couldn't conceive of relating to God any other way than having this edifice that they could go in and make sacrifice, and it represented that God had come down to them. But let's remember the other side of this temple, that the temple was a sign of God's presence and His grace, but it was also a little bit ominous. It was a forbidding and an imposing sign because you could only come into His presence to some degree. And you had to bring an offering. You had to bring sacrifice. And you could only dwell in the outer courts. You could only worship in the outer courts because God dwelled in the inner courts, in the Holy of Holies, and it was dangerous to go there. Only the high priest could go there once a year. And he wore bells so that if he died, everyone else would know, and the priest could drag his carcass out of the Holy of Holies. That's what the temple represented, is that God is holy You can't look upon His glory and live. He was present in the temple, but it was still just a place. It was still just a building. In many ways, it was a sign of His presence, but also a sign that delineated His separation from His people. In other words, He's saying, I am with you in a real but a limited way, in a dangerous way way. Rudolf Otto was a sociologist in Germany, and he studied all the world religions, and he came up with what he called numinous awe to describe how human beings feel when they get into the presence of the holy. And what he says is that we're all torn with this enormous contradiction of two passions. We have fear, and we have a fascination with the holy. And so we have this approach avoidance conflict I want it, but I'm afraid of it. We're built for it, and yet we're scared of it. Does this describe, in some degree, your experience with God, your idea of coming into His presence? Most people I know, most people I counsel, I see this in my own life, that we wrestle with this some degree, this approach-avoidance conflict. Am I fit to stand before God? Can I come into His presence? God is fascinating. And at some level, we know that we need Him, but we're also scared of Him. And many of the most famous images of God are very scary. Who am I to stand before God? Moses was told that he can't look upon God's glory and live. Fascination is. And fear, attraction and anxiety. But here's where the story gets really interesting, because John 1 tells us that the Word of God, Jesus, the Son of God, was made flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The thing that Moses couldn't see or he would die, we now behold the glory of God in the person of. Of Jesus. Who could see it? Who could touch it? Tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers. Not just the priest anymore, but the lost and the least. These are the people that came to see and touch and talk with the glory of God. John actually tells us that the Word became flesh and it tabernacled among us. In the original language, it says He pitched His tent. This is a callback to how God revealed Himself to Israel in the wilderness. In a more perfect way, just as God came among Israel and dwelled in a tent in their presence to say, I am with you, I am for you, I haven't forgotten you, Jesus comes. And He says that He tabernacled among us. And later, Jesus tells us that He is God's not only tabernacle, but His temple. What the temple represented, He fulfills and He perfects. Jesus comes and there's clearly fascination. People have been fascinated by Jesus for 2,000 years. We now see Him in our toast. But now, it's fascination without fear. It's attraction without anxiety. You see, there's nothing to be scared of in Jesus and everything about Him that says, come close, come in. That He is the Holy of Holies. He is God incarnate. He embodies God's glory, and yet, come and meet God in His person. He tabernacles. He brings the presence of God to us. To all who are undeserving, he says, come in and be made new. Ultimately, you see, Ezra is writing down the praise of God's people, not simply regarding this one episode of rebuilding the temple, but he's writing down this prayer because of who God is, because of his character. He is good. And His love towards Israel endures forever. We've talked about these prayers as sort of models, and what a great way to start. If you don't know what to pray, if you're lost, just pray that. He is good, and His love endures forever. He is the one who relentlessly pursues His people. We don't get to Him, but He comes and He gets to us. He comes for us progressively, more real, more tangible, more relational, more personal until He comes in person, face to face. The glory of God comes in the person of Jesus, and instead of killing you, it invites you in and it gives you life. And so the message in Ezra, the message in the gospel is come out of the exile of sin and self-salvation and be made new, come to His table, not as strangers, but as those He has called and loved and accepted and has made new in His death and His resurrection. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that we would hold in tension these images of You, that You are holy, that You are to be revered. And the Bible even says that we are to come in fear of You, in awe of You, and yet You send us Your Son who comes in a weak form, in the body of a man who lives a pauper's life and is killed on our behalf, and so You are approachable. Lord, let us cling to both of these images of You, and Lord, let it motivate us to live holy lives and yet humble lives. Let us live obedient lives and lives that we know that we can't fully obey, and you have paid for all of our sin. And Lord, let that cause us to stand in awe of you, of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.